Yeah. One of my favorite hymns, we sang it last week, and it is good to know that our foundation is sure, it is firm, because we are built on the rock of Jesus Christ. I'm told that our church building is really confusing because it was built in stages, it sprawls as you go from section to section, and I'm told that part of uh, the reason for all the elevation changes in our church is because there's bedrock under this building. I kind of like that. It kind of makes me feel good that we are built on the rock, that we're built on rock that's so firm that blasting it won't even work, that the rock that we're built on is so firm you got to build around it because we are built on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ our Lord. That makes me really happy. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Mark, for, I think laughter is good for the soul, it's therapeutic, and yeah, thank you. Mark is one of the funniest people I know. He usually sends me great uh, illustrations that I could have used in my sermon about 30 minutes too late. So thank you for that, Mark. I'm going to start running them by you beforehand so you can give me those before. And, uh, a big thanks to Nathan Burbank for helping us out today. And especially want to thank Dora Love, Leslie Love's mom, who filled in on the piano today. Just happened to be in town this weekend to see her grandkids play basketball. And uh, she happens to be an accomplished church pianist and did a wonderful job. So thank you, Dora, for being here and for filling in. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, <clears throat> but have eternal life. What an incredible promise. What an incredible verse of scripture that we hear from God's word. You know, it's been a tough couple of weeks here at Woodmont Baptist, uh, dealing with Richard's departure. There are note cards I want to draw your attention to in the, the south entrance and the north entrance in our visitor areas um, where you can write a note to Richard and Carol and ex express your love, your appreciation, your prayers for him and for Carol. Of course, we're, we're broken and we're, we're grieving and because we're grieving, we're going through those stages of, of grief. I've experienced anger and, and, and guilt and and, and frustration and sadness and all these things coming in waves in, in my own life, fear, anxiety, confusion, all of those things. And the rain sure hasn't helped, but you see the sun shining today as Mark pointed out. Calvin was trying to find a, a location to secure a large amount of gopher wood just in case we had to build a boat, but um, call that off, Calvin, we're gonna be okay. Um, I was really worried last week that I hadn't put in the proper amount of preparation into my sermon that was warranted by such a great text, John 3, talking about the new birth, and I was really upset that I, I feel like I was cheating the church, that I wasn't bringing a, a really wonderful pearl of, of wisdom out of the text for us to hear last week, and so I, I, I got through the sermon thinking that was probably a waste of 30 minutes, and and someone came forward and, and said how the Spirit had spoken to their soul through God's Word during that time. And it was God's grace in that moment reminding me that um, no matter <laughs> what my preparation is, it's His Word that accomplishes what it goes out to do. It reminded me of Isaiah 55, verse 11. It says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose 
and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The King James Version that several of us grew up with says that God's word does not return what? Do you remember? Void. I love that. Void. God's word doesn't come back void. That's a great comfort. No matter what you're going through today, no matter where your heart is, no matter where your head is, no matter what kind of anxiety or baggage you bring in here today, God's word is about to go forth and it does not return void. I'm comforted that God's word accomplishes what God wants it to accomplish and therefore it succeeds where I as a preacher do not. So let's stand, if you're able to, in honor of God's powerful word as I read our text for today, one of the most important passages in the whole Bible, John chapter 3, verses 9 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Nicodemus said to Christ, how can these things be? I've asked that question a lot lately. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, I recently heard someone on the radio complaining how social media has ruined high school reunions. Social media has ruined high school reunions because it used to be you'd show up at a you know, 10 year, 20 year, 30 year reunion and you'd say, oh wow, you've, you've changed so much. But now we're, we're watching people change in real time, at least what they're putting forth on social media. So the transformation isn't as drastic. You know someone's already bald before they show up at their 20 year reunion now because you've seen it on Instagram or Facebook or wherever. The guy that was saying on the radio, Cindy, oh wow, you haven't changed a bit since you posted your profile pic yesterday. It hadn't changed at all. I think it's kind of like my, my high school friends can't believe that I'm actually a pastor now. But they see it on social media and they know it's true. And the point was that sometimes we don't see that, that drastic transformation in someone's life because it's happening on social media and we, we're confronted with it. 
People don't seem all that different to us then. The surprise of newness is gone. I was reminded of John chapter 3 when I heard this. You know, last week when we looked at the first eight verses in this chapter, we talked about how Nicodemus, this Pharisee, he's a, a rule follower, he's an he's a, a aristocrat, he's a ruler, one of the leading Jewish authorities in all of Israel, part of the Sanhedrin, who tells all the other Jews in the entire world what to do. He comes to see Jesus at night because he has this suspicion that Jesus just might be the real deal. Just maybe he's the Messiah that we've been looking for and waiting for. And the question that we ended with last week was, have we been through a transformation? Have we been born again and radically changed from the inside out? Have we experienced that change of heart, change of mind, change of attitude, change of focus, change of purpose, change of hopes, change of future? Have we been born again and been made brand new? Are we a new creation and the old has gone? So Nicodemus comes to Jesus longing to be made new. His years and years of attempting to be right with God through following the law have get, gotten him nowhere. He's spinning his wheels and he knows he needs change. He doesn't feel any closer to God. Anyone in here who's a rule follower who's tried to become right with God through being perfect can tell you it doesn't work. Not on your own anyway. So Jesus tells them about a way that he can be made brand new, a way to be born not of the flesh, but of water and of the spirit. And he tells them about the non-negotiables of the new birth, repentance and regeneration. The kind of repentance that leads to regeneration being made brand new. We said that repentance is not just turning from the way you were going and turning back to the Lord, but it's a change, a change of heart, a change of attitude, change of mind. It means deciding that God is best, that God's ways are best, that God's word is best. To repent is to acknowledge that God is God and we are not, and that's a good thing. It means turning, again, from your own ways and running boldly towards God and his precepts. If we do those things, we find the Holy Spirit moving in us, making us new from the inside out. So Nicodemus hears this and he asks one final question here in verse 9. How can these things be? And what he's really asking is how can this happen? What's the process by which I can be born again? How can I be made brand new all over again. And remember, he's a scholar. He's not some dummy. He's a, he's a theologically trained, high, highly educated teacher. One of the greatest teachers in all Jerusalem. Look at verse 10. Jesus asked him, are you the teacher of Israel? Some scholars think that means he's the, the top professor, the top authority in scholarly matters in Israel. And yet you don't understand these things. D.A. Carson, the, the New Testament scholar, says that when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel, it's like he's saying, you are the reverend, professor, doctor, esteemed highly in your field, and you don't understand these theological truths. Nicodemus 
should have known from passages like Ezekiel 37, right? The valley of the dry bones, that God is the God who brings dead things to life. As Trey mentioned earlier, you were about to preach there and I was liking it. I was, I was feeling that, Trey. The chapter right before Ezekiel 37 in verse, chapter 36 refers to a day when God would bring his people into this new birth, into this new creation, this new kind of existence. Ezekiel 36, verse 24, says the Lord is speaking to his people and says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. What does that sound like? Baptism. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. That sounds like what happens after repentance. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. That sounds like regeneration. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules because those are the best rules. Nicodemus knew these verses. He had them memorized. These Jewish scholars memorized the entire 39 books of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. He knew these scriptures. He knew that all the, what all the leading rabbis said about this text, that there would be a day when God would make his people new, but he missed the point. Nicodemus failed to see that this text is describing this day when God, as a father, would relate to his children in an intimate kind of way, in a whole different way than the cultic, ritualistic practices of the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus had to explain that his credentials are not like Nicodemus. Jesus is the carpenter's son, right? He's, he's from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nicodemus had earned degrees and accolades and all the best institutions of Israel. He had his diplomas hanging up in his office. Nicodemus didn't understand that Jesus' authority comes from heaven. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Since Jesus had come from heaven, his authority is actually much deeper and much more profound and much truer, if that's a word, much more true than Nicodemus's authority. He knows more than a lifetime of book learning could ever hope to teach someone. And then Jesus gives Nicodemus the perfect illustration from the Old Testament for what the new birth is all about. He uses a scene from Numbers. He knows from Numbers, look at chapter four, uh, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is he talking about? Well, Nicodemus knew what he was talking about. He was talking about this scene we have in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. This is in the Torah. That means Nicodemus would have learned this text, memorized this text, when he was six years old as a, a little boy in Hebrew school. He knew the story of God's people wandering in the wilderness and how they cried out to the Lord. Look at verses four through nine. They'll be on the screen. 
From Mount Hor, they, the Israelites, set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. They weren't ready to fight those guys yet. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. I think that's hilarious. I was like, there's no food. Well, we have food. We just don't like it. That's like my children. It sounds like my kids. We have no food. We don't like the food we have. Verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Did God take away the fiery serpents? No. Did God answer the prayers of Moses and the people? Yes, in a much better way. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. It's a terrifying scene. I don't like snakes. I don't handle snakes. I don't do bats. I don't do any of those kinds of things. It's, it's scary. God's people are wandering the desert. They've been wandering for years. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They don't like the food that God's given them. They want to go back to Egypt where they got three squares a day. They're complaining. But instead of sending food and, and, and good food and, and, and water, God instead, instead sends fiery snakes. The, the fiery part, most scholars think, is, is their venom that would cause burning and, and pain as it entered into the human bloodstream and it caused a, a burning fever that would eventually lead to death. Why would God do this? Why would a good God not just say, here, here's, here's some food, here's some water? Why would a good God send snakes? Maybe it's because he wanted them to learn to turn to the only source of salvation. He provided a way out, a surefire cure for restoration and healing. You see the application here, right? Jesus, in his brilliant teaching, is giving us a picture of this dying, sin-sick world in which we all live, and he's showing us the saving power of the cross of Christ lifted high in the midst of a sick world. It's a powerful and accurate analogy. The snakes, of course, are the symbol of sin. Ever since Satan appeared as a serpent in the Garden of Eden and tempted our fallen ancestors, Adam and Eve, sin has been wreaking havoc on our world and on you and me. This is why we're born into sin. This is why we're given the same terminal diagnosis the minute we enter this world of being born broken and flawed because of sin. And then we see in this text in Numbers 21, the, the likeness of a serpent lifted high on a pole. It's not an actual serpent. It's a representation of a serpent. Romans 8, 3 says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he, God, condemned sin in the flesh. We know that 
2 Corinthians says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin. He was a representation of sin, even though he was not sinful himself. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus was not sinful, but he appeared like the rest of us. He appeared as a person, as a flawed person, in order to become the curse that we incurred. The curse of sin, the curse of serpents is death. So Jesus took the death that we earned, that we deserved on himself as he was lifted up on the cross. We were in downtown Franklin yesterday where I grew up. Um, I went to preschool at First Methodist Church, downtown Franklin, there for a, a year. My, my cousin and her husband, who were in town all the way from Houston, Texas, we were walking them around in the pouring rain. It was a terrible day to sightsee. And we saw the courthouse, the old courthouse. And I remember seeing pictures of the square in Franklin in the 1800s when they would hold public hangings. They would, they would hang people uh, at the top of the balcony um, they're right in the, the middle of the courthouse, and people would come out and bring their picnic lunch and watch the hanging. And it was meant, of course, as a deterrent. It was a, a public display saying, don't do what they did, or this will happen to you. Let this be a lesson, all you people. And the Romans thought the same thing about crucifixion. The Romans would crucify as a public statement. It was a deterrent in order to keep people from doing criminal activities or becoming unruly. They would execute a condemned person by first laying the, the crossbeam on the ground and they would nail that person's wrist to the crossbeam and then they would hoist them up using ropes up onto the vertical beam. That act of lifting Christ from the ground to go onto the cross is what John mentions three times in his book, as we're going to see. This is the first one. As Christ was lifted onto the cross, it is as if the serpent is being raised up. Not as a deterrent for sin, but as a solution for sin. As the solution for sin. The point isn't to scare people into acting right. The point is to save them from the wrong things that they've done. And no matter how many bites the Israelites had received, multiple bites, no matter how much deadly burning toxin had entered into their bloodstream, all they had to do was look to the bronze serpent and they would live. It was a surefire cure. The same is true for us. I know people who've sat in my office and told me, you don't know the things I've done, Nathan. I've done terrible things. I'm a horrible person. I, I'm beyond the grace of God. God couldn't save me. But no matter how many wrong things you've done, the analogy applies. All we have to do is look to Christ and live. No one is beyond the grace of God expressed in the cross of Christ. And at the time, Nicodemus didn't understand how Jesus would be lifted from the earth, how he would be held up as an example for everyone else to see, but we know John tells us what happens after the crucifixion. Let me give you a, a preview of what we're going to talk about sometime in November, I think. It clicks with Nicodemus. He gets it. He understands what Jesus was saying. When he sees Jesus on the cross and sees him lifted up from the earth, it suddenly all makes sense. 
And, and a few hours after Jesus dies, you know, Joseph of Arimathea, right, comes and, and takes the body of Jesus and puts him in his own tomb. Do you know who came with him? Nicodemus. Isn't that cool? Nicodemus is also an aristocrat like Joseph of Arimathea. These are wealthy guys, and he brings all these rich spices and oils in order to prepare the body for burial. And they lay him lovingly, gently into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. They, they roll the stone in front of him, and, and his devotion to his Savior, his act of final act of service to his Lord and Master is richly rewarded two days later when Jesus emerges from that same tomb victorious over death and sin forever. Sunday's coming. Easter's coming. They prepared his body, but they were rewarded when he emerged. And then comes the greatest gospel verse in the whole Bible, John three sixteen. The greatest illustration, that, that picture from Numbers 21, is followed now by the greatest explanation, John 3.16 and following. Martin Luther, the great reformer, one of my heroes, called John 3.16 the gospel in miniature. The, the new birth, going from death to life, becoming brand new, has already been grounded in the lifting up of the sun, and now that lifting up which is the climax of the Son's mission, is itself grounded in the amazing love of God. The heart of the gospel is God's overwhelming, never-ending, prodigal, reckless love. The amazing love of God. How can these things be, asked Nicodemus? How can I be forgiven? How can I be right with God? The answer is the love of God is how. The amazing agape gift love for God so loved that he gave. The, the love of God is extravagant. It lavishes. It's not a deserved or earned gift, but it's an amazing gift of grace, unmerited favor. It says that God loved the world. This cosmos, that word in Greek, it usually refers to a sinful a realm, a place of suffering, this world. You know, I, I know a lot of so-called Christians who embrace a type of escape theology. Have you heard of that? That's the theology that teaches one glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. I'm out of here. I'm going to leave this wretched place behind. That's not how God feels about it. God so loved the cosmos. So much so that he's trying to redeem it and bring it all back to himself, so much so that he would give his only son in order to make this cosmos right like it was before the fall, before sin entered the world. That's how much God loves this world, this cosmos. We would be wrong to not love it too. One day we know that Jesus will come back and break into our world and heaven will come down and he'll sit on the throne and say, behold, I make all things new in the cosmos. And then we see the condition for eternal life. In verse 16, whoever believes in him shall not perish. There's a belief element that's on us. We receive the abundant life that Christ came to bring us. By the way, that's now and for eternity. Simply by believing that he is enough, that he can do what he says he can do, that he can make us right, that he will give us his perfect righteousness and take our sin upon himself. 
by believing that he has accomplished what we could never have done, which is perfectly fulfill the requirements of God's justice and the greatest act of the greatest love. God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest object, that he gave the greatest act, his only son, the greatest gift, that whoever, the greatest opportunity, believes the greatest simplicity, in him, the greatest attraction, should not perish, the greatest rescue, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. It's a wonderful verse. We don't read that verse, though, very often in its context. You know what is true about any text without a context? It's just a pretext for whatever you want to say. It's important to read verses 17 and 18 as well. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. I've heard people quote verse 17 before to say something like, Jesus didn't come to condemn, so we shouldn't condemn either. And I say, that's right. Great. I'm with you. We shouldn't condemn anyone. Jesus didn't come to condemn. That sounds good. I'm with you. But then they take it a little further and say, we're not condemned then. If you can't condemn me and Jesus didn't come to condemn, then we're not under condemnation. We're all good. Wait, no. That's, again, that's the false gospel of I'm okay, you're okay. Just look at the next verse, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, hallelujah. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only son of God. We gotta remember there are venomous snakes everywhere. <laughs> We're not okay. <laughs> we are fiery serpents all around us. We're in the sinking boat of sin. We are not okay. That's a lie from the pit of hell that advertising would love for you to believe. Jesus didn't come to condemn, that's true, but he didn't have to condemn. We were condemned already by our sin. So there's a process now in, in light of, of that condemnation that's, that's happening between light and darkness. The light that Christ brings, remember, the prologue in John 1, how Jesus came as the light of the world, but people didn't receive the light because they love the darkness. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's clear from these verses that how we respond to the light of Christ is how we feel about the new birth. If we love the light, if we love the coming into the truth of Jesus Christ, then that's how we relate to becoming a new creation. How do you respond to the light? They say sunlight is the best disinfectant do you love the cleansing, the healing power of the light of Christ? Or do you prefer the darkness? It's really important to face that question today before you leave. 
So to recap, we've been talking about the new birth. How can these things be? How can I be born again? And we've seen the greatest illustration. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we've heard the greatest explanation for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So here's the point. We face a deadly serious problem of sin. The fiery serpents are indeed surrounding us always. As, as Peter says in 1 Peter, the, the sin is like a, a lion who's prowling around looking for someone to devour. How we deal with sin is a matter of life or death. We could try. We're very accomplished people. Woodmont is a very sophisticated church. I told my cousin yesterday that there's more PhDs in my church than any other church. I'd bet money on it. Per capita, we have a lot of PhDs here. It's incredible. A lot of smart people, a lot of gifted people, a lot of people with a lot of resources. We could try to manage our own sin problem as best as we can. We could probably do pretty good. We could probably try to get rid of the, of the venom with our best efforts. Dr. Barnhouse, uh, Donald Barnhouse, he was a Presbyterian preacher in the mid-20th century. He suggested that the Israelites in the desert could have organized to fight the deadly serpents. They could have incorporated the Society for the Extermination of Fiery Serpents. They could have worn badges, issued cards. This sounds like the 50s, right? I, I wasn't around then, but I'm assuming. Elected secretaries, held rallies, issued photographs of slain serpents, and played down all the statistics of death. <laughs> they could have even tried to make a deal with the serpents to buy them off, but none of those things would have worked. Nicodemus asked, how can this be? How can I be born again? And the answer is through belief in Christ alone, through looking to the cross. We have to surrender. We have to give up our, our independence. We have to give up our cleverness, our self-improvement, our best religious efforts, and simply look to him alone. Have you placed your faith, your belief in Christ alone? Have you looked to him and said, I can't do it. I can't manage the, the sin issue in my life by myself. Isaiah 45, verse 22, the Lord says in his grace and in his compassion, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Look to him, believe, and so have everlasting life. Let's pray. Lord God, you have shown us in your word the seriousness of what it means to be born flawed and broken, that we are under a terminal diagnosis that whether we realize it or not, that there are fiery serpents all around us. And yet you did not abandon us, nor did you treat us like some spoiled toddler and just take the serpents away. But you forged a way for us to be saved, a way for us to live, a way for us to be spared, not from the pain necessarily, but from the evil that was intended in that pain. God, I pray that we would turn to you and live, not just survive, not just be able to endure 
snake bites, but to live, to flourish, to thrive as you would have us to thrive. I pray that we would look to you and run to you, the only source of hope of salvation that we have, because we confess to you now, we cannot do it on our own. We need a savior. We cannot save ourselves. And God, that's not just for those of us who may be here today who have not received you as Lord and Savior, but for all of us, that's true. For those of us who've been walking with you for a long time now, it's still as true today as it ever has been that we are desperately in need of a Savior. And all you require of us is to turn to you and live. I pray that we would understand that we cannot pay the price that our sins have incurred. We cannot pay the debt that we owe, but that you have paid it for us in full. And therefore, we can look to you on the cross and live. We thank you for this hope that we have. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This morning, if you want to pray, if you want to come to the altar, it's going to be open during our hymn of response. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never surrendered everything to him and laid it all down and said, I want to become a Christian, I want to be born again and be made brand new from the inside out, I'd love to talk with you about that right now. If you want to join this church and say, I want to be a part of what God's doing, even in the midst of, of uh, crisis and, and, and turnover, that you want to be involved in what God's doing here, I'm so grateful that the, the choir was full and that they sang loud today, that people are stepping up all over this church. If that's you today and you want to step up and be a part of what God's doing, come and let somebody know here. I'm going to ask Jan Bennett if she'll come up here and you can pray with her, you can pray with Trey here, you can pray with Brad if you'll come. If you want to pray for healing, maybe you have something going on in your life and you need the Lord to move in a miraculous way. We serve the God of miracles. He still does them. He still does them. I've seen it. I've seen it. If you want to pray for something uh, and you want to pray with some of these people or come to the altar and pray, whatever it is you need to do during this time, let's stand and sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe.